Here's a little story from John's Gospel, one of the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. Hopefully it will come up on the screen. Sorry the screen's on the blink. Um, Just kind of guess the words as we go, but we've got this, so that's good. Here we go, chapter 4 from verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well It was about noon. When a Samaritan came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman says, I love this, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She's classic deflection here. Ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Then they go on and chat a bit about that. And in verse 27, just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to see him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then we'll skip that little interaction down to verse 39. It says this, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This morning I want to talk to you about the power of invitation, the power of invitation. Um, In the 1950s, long time ago, 70 years ago, my gran and granddad got married in a little Anglican church in London and they didn't go to church, they weren't churchgoers, they wouldn't consider themselves to be Christians but they decided to get married in the church simply because that's kind of what you did back then and so they went to this Anglican church and they got married and they made friends with one particular man in the church who just attended the wedding 
wedding because it was going on there. And they kept in contact with this guy. And then a few months later, the man rang my gran and granddad up and said, listen, there's this guy in town called Billy Graham. You won't have heard of him, but I'd love to invite you to one of his events. And my gran and granddad, not knowing who Billy Graham was or what it was about, just said yes simply because they quite liked the guy. And so they went to Haringey um, to hear this guy called Billy Graham. And when they got to Haringey Stadium, there were so many people, it was so busy outside that they lost each other and ended up sitting on opposite sides of the stadium. So my gran was on one side and then thousands of people on the other side was my granddad. They got separated as they went in. And they heard Billy Graham speak, and in the classic way Billy Graham can only speak and did speak, he simply spoke about Jesus and what he could do for the lives of those who believe in him and follow him. And my grandma was sitting there, and as Billy Graham was talking about Jesus, she said it was like a fire went off inside of her, and she suddenly started to feel incredibly emotional about what this guy was saying. And so when he got to the end of the talk, he did what he always did at the end of his talks, and he invited anyone that wants to come and believe in Jesus and follow him and give their life to him to come down to the front of the stadium and give their lives to Jesus. And she said she watched as thousands of people poured out of these stands and went to the front of the stage and gave their lives to Jesus. And my grandma was saying as she walked down from the stand, she was like, I wonder what's happened to John, her husband, my granddad. I wonder what's happened to him. Like he's probably still standing there. It must be a bit weird for her. She's thinking, I'm about to do this thing and he's not here. And she goes down to the front and Bill and Graham gets everyone to shut their eyes and hold their hands out and they receive Jesus and believe in Jesus for the first time. And my gran is getting more and more emotional as she's experiencing the love of Jesus in her life. And she opens her eyes and she turns her head to the right and my granddad is standing right next to her on the pitch opposite Billy Graham. And they come down from totally opposite sides and found themselves next to each other. There's power in an invite. And that invitation from this guy who just happened to be at my gran and grand's, granddad and grand's wedding changed the course of my entire family's history. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing now, standing on this stage in this church. And it started with a really simple invite 70 years ago. And this is something that we see again and again and again when people invite others who don't necessarily consider themselves as Christians or haven't heard about Jesus before or certainly haven't heard about anything credible about Jesus or experienced Jesus before. This is what we see again and again as they come to church or come to events that church is put on so as to help people encounter and meet Jesus. There is power in these invitations that we extend to our friends. And you probably know, because we've been talking about it for a long time, but on Wednesday, we're starting something here called the Life Course. And the Life Course is essentially six weeks about Jesus. Now, we start quite far back. We start by asking the question, what kind of meaning do we attribute to our lives? We start to consider whether there's only any overarching meaning to our lives. And then in week two, we go on to discuss whether science or atheism or religion can give any overarching meaning to our lives. But then on week three, we start to consider some of the essential claims of the Christian faith, and we start with the character of Jesus. Is it possible, as we look at the character of Jesus, that this man is God in human flesh? Because if he's not, he's a crook. 
And then second week, is there any evidence to suggest that what he is saying might actually be true? And we look at the evidence of the resurrection. So many people have come to faith as they look at the evidence of the resurrection because the Christian claim isn't that all people rise. The Christian claim is that this one person rose and that he is God. And then the week after that, we look at what does that mean for our lives? And as we look at what that means for our lives, we see that it affects everything. It can change the course of our history, our children's history, our children's children's history. There's power in an invitation. And yet for some of us, this idea of being asked to invite friends or family or work colleagues to an event at church fills you with dread. The idea of it makes you incredibly uncomfortable. You start to clam up. You get nervous. Surely he's not asking us to invite somebody to church. I haven't even told them about church. In fact, they probably don't even know I'm a Christian. They don't know anything about that part of my life. And I'd rather keep it that way. Why? Probably because of fear. And we all have this. I have this. Everyone has this. There's tons of different things going on when we're asked to invite people to church or to hear about Jesus. And there's obviously the kind of fears such as the fear of rejection. There's no way our friends would ever, ever want to come into church and hear about Jesus. There's no way they'd ever want to have any kind of evidence presented to them that Jesus might be who he says he is. And therefore, they're just going to reject us. And nobody likes being rejected. And therefore, we don't do it out of fear. Other reasons that we don't do it, surely they don't need it. Look at them. They've got their life all together. They're successful. They're having a great time. Surely they don't need what we have to offer to them. Other things, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it, as we do that, because it's an admission of guilt on ourselves or an admission that we haven't got it all together, that we need something in our lives that's beyond what we're currently experiencing. There's also the fear of being found out. We don't know all the answers. It doesn't always make sense. There's not an answer that's simple to every single question that everybody has about Jesus or about faith or about whether there is a God or not, and so therefore we don't extend any invitations. And I think at the root of this fear to invite people to come and hear about Jesus probably is this human tendency to compartmentalize our lives. You see, we like to think that over here we have our work life and it's nine to five, it's Monday to Friday and everything that happens at work, we try to keep it in work and we try and not let it spill out into our lives. Then over here we have our friends and sometimes a few friends from the work context spill into the friends category, but most of the time we try and separate it from work and have it completely separate. And then we have our families and in our families, they're weird and wonderful, they're amazing, we love them, but it's dysfunctional and we don't want anyone else getting involved in that and so we compartmentalize mentalize it and we keep it as it is and then we have our church life which is an hour and a half on Sunday an hour in the week if we're lucky and we compartmentalize that we don't want anyone getting involved in that or that spilling into the rest of our lives this tends to happen with different aspects of our lives we like to fit things into neat categories we don't like it to spill out from one kind of compartment to the other, and therefore when someone says to you, let's invite people to church to meet Jesus, we panic. Now our problem with that panic is that we miss out on the potential power of an invitation to meet Jesus. Can you imagine how that guy felt? In fact, that guy then became my mum's godfather and my mum went to see him a few months ago and was telling him all the stories of different things that's going on in our family's life. Can you imagine how amazing that would have felt for that guy? All he did was he invited my grand and granddad to one event and look at the effects on the family. 
if we fit things into these neat categories, if we don't allow church and Jesus and the family that we have here spill out into the rest of our lives, then it prevents us potentially from us being used powerfully by God. And there's so many things in this story that I've just read that could have been the same in that there were so many compartments, there were so many lines that Jesus crossed, there were so many boundaries that Jesus had no regard for whatsoever that he literally smashed through that meant that there was power in this story. So here's a few of them. First one is the racial boundary, verse 9. The woman said to Jesus, um, it said, John says in the commentary, he says, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans, Jews, um, Jesus was a Jew, this lady was a Samaritan. They'd been at war for 400 years. They were not talking to each other. In fact, they absolutely hated each other. And it would have been perfectly normal for a Jewish person to go three days out of their way so as to circumvent Samaria so they didn't have to meet any Samaritan. But Jesus didn't care. He goes straight through and he meets someone. Second boundary that Jesus smashes through, the religious boundary, verse 11, the woman says to Jesus, you've got nothing to draw with, essentially saying you don't have a bowl to get water out of the well, and she's standing there with her own bowl that she's brought herself. So what does that mean? Well, essentially, it means that the bowl that she has would have been ritually unclean for a Jewish person to use. It would have been defiled in religious language. And so therefore, in order to ask, as Jesus did, for use of that bowl, he was breaking so many of the purity laws, it's not even worth thinking about. He smashes through the religious boundary. Third boundary, he smashes through the gender boundary. Verse 9, the the woman says to Jesus, but you're a Jew and I'm a woman. You see, rabbis of which Jesus was wouldn't have been seen associating with women in public. In fact, there were some sects of of pharisaical law that were so extreme that in the streets, if their wife or their daughter started to pass them by, they'd have to close their eyes so that they didn't see the woman in front of them. And there's one particular sect that was called the bruised and the broken Pharisees, because as they closed their eyes, they kept bumping into walls and falling over. Idiots. They deserve it. Four, moral boundary, verse six. It was about noon, we're told by John. That's kind of maybe insignificant to us, but the reason he says it's about noon is because noon would have been the hottest part of the day. You would never have gone to get water at noon. Everyone went to get water in the morning when it was cooler or in the evening when the day had cooled down a bit. But the reason the woman was there at noon was because she was a complete outcast because she was morally unclean. She was put right to the edge of society so that the thing that she needed most to survive, she wasn't allowed to get until other people weren't there. For so many reasons, this interaction between Jesus and this woman shouldn't be happening, and yet it does, and it's powerful. There's so much power in the invitation. What's the invitation? Well, he says it here in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. You see, the invitation Jesus is making is so powerful that it permeates every category Every compartmentalization that we try to do with our lives, every boundary that we erect, every single line that we say we can't cross, every single wall that we put up to try and stop things from spilling into other parts of our lives, the water, the living water of Jesus permeates every single thing and goes right to the heart. It's powerful. Um, A few years ago, I read this study about water 
And um, in the study, and it was done for like 30,000 people, so I guess it's legit, it's a lot of people. Uh, basically, they came up with uh, the conclusions of this study were that only 1% of the population are drinking enough water. So we're made up of certain amounts of water, a lot, and we're supposed to drink eight cups of water, glasses of water a day, so as to replenish the water in our bodies. And this study found that 60% of us are only drinking one of the eight cups a day. And so therefore, we're all walking around dehydrated. And obviously, the moral of that story is drink more water. But there's a spiritual thing I'd like to draw out from that. And that's this. The thing that I thought when I read that study was that can't possibly be true. I'm absolutely fine. Like, I don't feel dehydrated. I go about my day. I definitely don't drink more than one cup of water a day. But I'm fine. And so I decided to test out this study. And I started drinking eight cups of water a day. And it was incredibly uncomfortable and made me feel sick. But after a few weeks of drinking eight cups of water a day, about two weeks, in, I would wake up in the morning and I would be so thirsty for water. I'd be so dehydrated I'd need more water. I was drinking more water than I'd ever drunk before in my life and yet I'd wake, I'd wake up and feel dehydrated. And the reason for that is that when we don't drink enough water, our internal, and this is scary, our internal organs start to shut down and require less. And so therefore our body just survives on less. And this is so true when it comes to the living water that Jesus is talking about in this passage. You see, the Christian claim is that, yes, we need water in order to be able to survive physically. We need food in order to be able to survive physically. We need friends. We need connection in order to be able to survive emotionally. But the Christian claim is that there's something that only Jesus can provide, that unless we have it, we're dying inside spiritually. And the tragedy is most people don't even have a clue because they're so used to surviving on less. And so the water that Jesus is offering is the living water. He says it again later in the Gospel of John. This is John 7. He stands up in front of a bunch of people at a Jewish festival. And he says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit. He means the presence of God, the love of God, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And you see this theme throughout the whole of the New Testament. In fact, Old Testament carries through into the New Testament. You see the conclusion of it in Revelation where it says streams of living water will flow from the center of the temple and bring life to everything that is around the temple. And we are the living temple. We are the living stones that make up the temple. And therefore, as we receive the water of life from Jesus, we realize that we need it again and again and again. As we receive his water, it starts to flow out from within us and bring life everywhere it goes. There's so much power when we invite people to taste the living water of Jesus. So much power. So what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, it means that we can have confidence that when we invite people to something like the life course, and it doesn't need to be limited to the life course, although that is starting on Wednesday, so you might want to consider that. Um, but when we invite people to experience Jesus from our own experience of him, from the ways that he has satisfied our own thirst in our lives, there is so much power. We can have confidence when we do it that people really desperately need what we're offering them, whether they know it or not. And look at the effects that this woman's story has on the rest of the town. 
So the woman then leaving her water jar, having met Jesus, goes back to the town and says to the people, this is verse 28, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Savior? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then skipping across to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. He stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Then they said to the woman, we know no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Can you see what's happening there? The living water of Jesus is permeating everything and everyone that it comes into contact with. It starts with the woman by the well who's an outcast. She goes back into town and she says to the people in town, there is a man up by the well who's told me everything I ever did. And guess what? He didn't judge me. He simply poured love on me and showed me how loved I am by him. And He's probably the Messiah. You should come and see. So they go out. They follow a social, moral outcast to the well. They hear Jesus, and then they believe as well because God's water of life, the living water of his presence, fills and permeates everything. It's a little bit like when you get a leak in your house. When we moved into the vicarage next door, there was a tiny, tiny pinprick in one of the um, tubes, what are they call pipes, you can see I'm very good with plumbing. A pipe upstairs in the bathroom, right, on the far side of the house. And very small little water droplets were falling out of this pipe. Fast forward two weeks, the whole house is dripping with water. In fact, on the other side of the house, in the other bathroom, literally about... 50 meters away from the original source, there is water cascading down the walls of our toilet, all from one tiny little pinprick of water coming out of one pipe. What does that mean? It basically means that water can get through anything and everything. It permeates everything that it comes into contact with and it saturates it. And it all came from one tiny little pinprick. So let's think of our invites to people. When we invite them to come and experience Jesus, to come and hear about Jesus, let's think of them as small as a tiny little pinprick in a pipe. And it's amazing that as we do that little pinprick in someone's life, (laughs) so I'm not going to extend that, as we As we invite people to the life course, it's incredible how the water starts flowing. And before you know it, their whole life is saturated in the presence and in the love of Jesus. We have been doing the life course for tons of years, many years. I've done loads of them. Every time, they're brilliant. Um, And probably a few years ago, two, three years ago, um, someone came on the life course, and um, she was from an incredibly strict Muslim background. Her name was Terim. And she came on the life course to convert the people there to Islam. Um, So she's there for a purpose. And she's in my friend's group. And the whole time she's arguing about everything going on. And she's essentially trying to convert everyone to Islam. And this kind of went on for the first few weeks of the course. And then we got to the bit where we have the weekend away, where we take people away. And we'll probably do it as a day here. We might if there's more people do a weekend away. And we ask them to invite the presence of Jesus into their lives, probably for the first time for many of them. And it's like a little pinprick. All we do is we say to them, why don't you just shut your eyes, open your hands, and why don't you, if Jesus is there, if he's real, why don't you ask for an experience, an encounter of him? And so people do that. And as people are doing that, my friend Terem is standing there with her arms crossed, just staring at everyone being prayed for. 
And so I go over to her and I say, listen, Taryn, what would it take for you to do what these guys are doing and open yourselves to the presence of Jesus? And she said, well, there's no way I'll ever do that. But if you pray in the name of Allah, um, I'll probably do that. Now, me being a naive, stupid, young curate, I said, of course, I'll pray in the name of Allah. No, no problems at all. Laid hands on her, prayed in the name of Allah. Uh, on the basis that a friend once said that Allah's just God in Islam. Anyway, um, I didn't get fired. I carried on. And as she was being prayed for, she started to experience something that she'd never experienced before. And she started crying. And she kind of shut it off and didn't do anything about it. Later on, the vicar of the church, my boss, went up to her and said, listen, I'd like to pray for you too. And she was like, well, he just prayed for me in the name of Alan. He said, that's a ridiculous thing to do. I'll pray for you in the name of the prophet Jesus, and let's see if that works. So he did that, and same thing happened. She started weeping uncontrollably, experienced the love of Jesus for the first time. And she completed the course, and probably a couple of weeks later, she turned up in church, and she came bounding up to me at the front of church. She said, hi, Ben how are you doing? And I looked at her and I promise you, I didn't recognize who the person was. Had no idea. She had to explain to me who she was because she looked like a totally different person. That small experience of the presence of Jesus started to permeate her whole life. And she's literally growing, glowing as a result with the presence filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So as we invite people, we can be confident that when we invite them, they need the thing that we're inviting them to, whether they know it or not. And so for those of us who are a bit nervous about inviting friends to the life course or to church or to anything, or even talking to them about our relationship with Jesus, um, for those of us who are a bit nervous about our kind of God area of our life spilling out into other areas of our life, it's going to happen anyway. The more you fill yourself to overflowing with the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's going to happen. But as it happens, we can have confidence that the people that we're inviting or the people that are being touched by the presence of Jesus through us need what is on offer in the invitation. And I just want to say, those of us who um, don't feel like they've ever experienced that living water that is being talked about in this passage. So you may have been coming to church for 10, 20, 30 years, your entire life. But when Jesus talks about living water, when Jesus talks about the presence of, of God saturating everything in your life, you have no idea um, what he's talking about or what we're talking about when we talk about ministry. Can I just say, could you be incredibly bold and just come on the course yourself? I promise you, you'll have a good time. It really is incredible as we start to hear some of the amazing things about Jesus' character, some of the incredible evidence about the resurrection of Jesus, some of the amazing implications that has on our life and the salvation and the freedom that we can have through him. It's amazing that as we do that, how Jesus starts to fill us with that same presence, how we start to experience that same living water. And we could have been coming to church for 50 years and never actually experienced what it feels like to suddenly realize we're thirsty for more of his Holy Spirit. So if that is you, please don't feel judged at all about coming on the course yourself. We'd love to have you. And we're going to mix all the groups up and it's going to be really good fun and you will have a good time, I promise. It's a lot of fun. For the rest of us who have tasted that living water, who know what it's like um, to receive the living water, to be satisfied by the presence of Jesus, use this as an opportunity to invite people to the life course, to invite people to come. And it's amazing. The people that we think are so far away from ever experiencing Jesus are often the ones that accept the invitation, usually because God's doing it anyway. 
there's been some really fun stories in our church recently. Um, one was really fun. Someone woke up in the morning, never been to church in their life before. And as they woke up, the first thought in their head was that they need to come to church. And so they tell their wife, and uh, his wife was Catholic, and she hadn't been to church since she was a kid. And they come to church, and they hear a couple of testimonies, because we had a baptism Sunday of God at work in people's lives. They see them getting baptized. And then I just did an incredibly simple gospel talk. In fact, I completely messed up the gospel part, because I had this mic, and there was a Bible, and it was an illustration, and it went horribly wrong. And I remember at the end thinking, that was the worst gospel talk I've ever done. But I did what I normally do at the end of a gospel talk. I asked anyone if they wanted to meet Jesus and follow him, and this put their hands up and then the guy came forward for prayer and as he's being prayed for he's weeping it's because God was doing it anyway there's so much power when we invite people to experience and encounter the living water of Jesus and so we're going to do it again because I believe that as humans we tend to leak which is why we do ministry every week. It's why every day I wake up and I ask for God to fill me afresh with his presence. Paul says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And therefore, that has the implication that we need more and more and more and more of the Holy Spirit because when we receive more of the Holy Spirit, we start to become that flow of living water that Jesus is talking about there in the gospel. So let's stand and let's do that now.